Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. I feel very privileged to have the opportunity to preach on any Sunday morning, any occasion that I get to share the word. Uh, it's a great privilege for me, so I'm honored to be up here. I'm thankful uh, for Byron and all that he does, for him entrusting me with bringing the word to Redemption Church uh, this Sunday morning, and even if it is the beginning of spring break and daylight savings time. So I, can, I don't know if he was just giving me an opportunity to preach or if he wanted to sleep in this morning. I'm not really sure. But here I am. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 11. So Romans 5, 1 through 11. One of the characteristics, one of, the characteristics of a person who is gospel-centered, right? someone whose life is centered and focused on the gospel, on the good news, one of the characteristics of that sort of person is that they have hope. They have hope. They are marked, set apart by a steadfast trust in the faithfulness of God. That's one of the marks, that's one of the characteristics of a gospel-centered person. They have hope. So even when everything seems to be going wrong, even in the midst of trials, they trust God. They trust that he is faithful to fulfill the promises of restoration that he has for his people. Right? They are trusting in the faithfulness of God. And so the whole reason that our church exists, Redemption Church, we exist to see a gospel-centered movement. So that's why, that's why we're here. Byron shared our vision earlier that we exist to see a gospel-centered movement in the heart of the city where every man, woman, and child can experience life change through Jesus. Amen. That's the, that's the vision of Redemption Church. We are gospel-centered. And so if a characteristic of a gospel-centered person is that they have hope, and we're a church full of gospel-centered, gospel-centered people, then we ought to be a church that hopes, right? We ought to be a church that is characterized by hope, a church that trusts in God's faithfulness. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in our text today. We're going to be looking at hope. And I thought it was interesting as we were worshiping this morning that so many of the songs that we sang together this morning were about hope. What are the odds of that? Right, this worship set was put together weeks ago. I had no idea what it was. I put my sermon together this morning. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but what are the odds that we would be singing, that we, we, we would be pro- proclaiming hope this morning as a church? And that's what we're going to see today as we look in Romans chapter 5. I want our church to be characterized by hope. So as we read through Romans this morning, my prayer is the same prayer that Paul had for the church in Rome when he was writing this letter. He says in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, that he prays that the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So this morning, I'm praying for hope, that we would be encouraged, that we would have hope, that we would trust God, that we would trust him in his faithfulness this morning. So let's pray before we continue in his word. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to bring your word this morning. I pray that it would be fruitful. God, we know that your word does not go out and return void, but that it goes out and it accomplishes its purposes. 
So God, this morning, if there is anyone here who needs hope, if there is anyone here who needs encouragement to trust you, to trust in your faithfulness and your goodness and your compassion, then God, this morning, I pray that they would be encouraged, that they would be filled with hope, that they would leave here trusting in your faithfulness, that they would leave here steadfast, knowing that you are good and that you love your children. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's look at... Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I will read it, and then we can walk through it together. It says this, starting at verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. There's a lot there, right? This is a long passage. Let's break it down. So Paul is telling us that because we have been justified by faith, we've entered into a new status before God, a new standing before him. And this new status results in a new way of life. It results in a new way of living. And so we now celebrate this hope of a future salvation, even in the midst of our suffering. So there's a lot to follow here. There's 11 verses we're going to look at. So let's look at Paul's argument. We'll follow his argument from verses 1 through 11. I'm going to summarize it briefly with with our big idea of what we need to be looking for, and then we'll walk through this passage together, okay? So here's what Paul is telling us. He's making an argument, and there's seven points to his argument. He's saying this. Number one, that we have been justified by faith. We've been justified by faith. Number two, that we now have peace with God through Jesus because of that justification. We now have a future hope that we've entered into peace, we have a future hope of the glory of God, and even in suffering, we have hope. More than that, our suffering should strengthen our hope. That's a concept, right? That our suffering should strengthen this hope. Number five, that we can be certain of this hope because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Number six, that we have a tangible something that has happened in the past, something tangible to look toward that proves this love of God for us, and that is that Jesus went to the cross to die for us. So we know God loves us because he sent Jesus. And this ends, this culminates in a rejoicing in our reconciliation. It's a long argument, right? But that's Paul's argument. He's arguing that we've been justified, we have peace with God, we have a future hope in God. Suffering strengthens that hope. The hope is certain because God loves us, and we're going to rejoice in it. All right, so let's look at what Paul says, and let's follow his argument. Here's the big idea. The big idea is this. We've been justified by faith and have a new standing before God that gives us a great hope even in the midst of our suffering. 
That's the big idea. So that's what we're looking for in this text. We want to see that we have a great hope because we've been justified by our faith in God and we stand now before him with peace. And we know that he loves us. Amen. All right, so let's start in verse 1, and we'll walk through this passage. So verse 1, it says this. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. All right, let's, already, let's pause for a moment. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Anytime you see in the scriptures the word therefore, you have to stop and ask yourself, what is therefore, therefore? Right? What is therefore, therefore? What is Paul referring to? So what is Paul referring to? What is the therefore, there? Four. Well, we need to go back and understand the first four chapters of the book of Romans. And while we don't really have time to read the entire four chapters of the book of Romans because Byron's not preaching today. So we're not going to read the entire first four chapters of the book of Romans, but I will summarize it for you briefly. So this is basically what's happening. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome, and he begins with this message of the gospel that he has come proclaiming the gospel of God, this good news, this good news that has the power of God to save sinners. This good news. And the Roman church needs to hear this news because there's a a problem. The problem is our sin and God's position before us because of our sin. So he comes, he's preaching the gospel, this good news, and he's explaining our need for this good news. He's saying that we have not glorified God that we have not thanked him, and that instead we've actually worshiped idols of our own making, that we've suppressed the truth that he's revealed to us, and we've, we've put him out of our minds, that in fact we hate God, and that we continue to do the things that we know God does not want us to do. We've shown contempt for his kindness. We've shown contempt for his tolerance and for his patience, that no one seeks after him. No one gives him the glory he deserves. He sums it up in chapter 323 when he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he comes sending this letter to the Roman church, explaining our position, our standing before God, and our need for this gospel message. And he says that there's no work that we could have done to be justified before God to save ourselves from his wrath. There's nothing that we could have done in and of ourselves that we needed a gift. We needed a gift of God's grace. And so what does God do? Well, he does something incredible. He sends Jesus on a rescue mission to save his people, to ransom his people. So Jesus comes, and he lives a life that we could never live, and he dies a death that we, in fact, deserved, and he satisfies the wrath of God against sin. That's the gospel message that Paul comes preaching. So the problem of sin going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden has now been solved. It has been finished through the work of Jesus. And he explains through the story of Abraham, Father Abraham. He tells his story and he shows that it's not through anything we could have done. We couldn't justify ourselves before God, but in fact, it's through our faith that we are saved, that we are justified by our faith in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And through that, we receive his righteousness. Paul says it this way back in chapter Three, he says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we receive salvation not by works, not by the work of the law or anything that we could do in ourselves, but rather we receive it through faith. We receive it through faith. So that's what Paul is bringing to the Roman church In chapters 1 through 4, he says it another way later in the book when he's writing to the Corinthian church. He tells them that for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
So Jesus on the cross takes our sin upon himself, and we receive this imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ in ourselves. So he takes on our sin, and we receive his righteousness. It's a great exchange, amen? That Jesus would take our sin, and we receive his righteousness. And so when Paul says, therefore, that's what it's there for. He's saying, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So that's, what, that's the justification by faith that Paul is referring to. And Paul's going to explain to us that there is a certain kind of life that we live in light of our justification, that now that we've been justified by faith, what does our life look like? That we live differently in light of what Jesus has done for us in the past. And it begins with a new standing before God, with a new standing before God. So number two, we now have peace with God through Jesus. We have peace with God through Jesus. Verses one through two say this, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. So we've moved from this position of enmity, right, this position of opposition between God and ourselves because of our sin and because of his righteousness. They are in opposition to one another, And now we have moved from that into a relationship defined by peace or a relationship defined by reconciliation, one only made possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. So we stand before God in a position of peace now, but understand that this doesn't mean that our lives will necessarily be at peace, right? That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that our position, our standing before God is different now, but that doesn't mean that in life we will always be at peace. We're going to see that in just a few verses, In just a few verses, Paul is going to expand on what it looks like for the Christian life and how we deal with suffering. But Paul is telling us that we have moved from standing against God to standing with God. And that's good news, amen? That's good news because back in chapter 2, we see that the position that we had before God prior was pretty hopeless, right? That the only thing that we had to look forward to was judgment, condemnation, separation from God, his wrath on that final day. That was what we had to look forward to when we stood in opposition to him. But now through Christ, we are reconciled. We have peace before God. And because of that peace, we also, on top of all that, is, I mean, that would just be great, right? If we just had peace with the Lord. But more than that, we also have access into his grace. We read about this in the book of Hebrews when it says that we can now enter boldly to draw near the throne room of grace. We can approach the grace, the throne of grace with confidence. So we're we're no longer condemned under the law, but rather we're free in God's grace. We are free in his grace. And this is this this just isn't just the gift of God's grace, which it is. God's grace is a wonderful gift. And Jesus secured it for us on the cross. It says in Romans 3:24 that our justification is a gift of God's grace. But Paul here is talking about a way of life a way of living, that we live differently now that we're no longer under the law. Since we're no longer under the law and under God's grace, that we're free, that we live a life of freedom. We no longer live under fear of God's wrath. We no longer live uh, under fear of condemnation. We no longer live under a fear of having to live up to the standards that God set in the law because Jesus lived up to those standards for us. So we're free 
We're free. We're covered by his grace. This grace is so freeing. It's so liberating that, in fact, in just a couple of chapters, Paul is going to go on to say that you could take advantage of this grace. That's how liberating this freedom is. And he warned us to not do that. He said, should we continue sinning so that grace may abound? In Romans 6.1, by no means. But that's the kind of grace that God has given us, one that liberates us from the condemnation, the weight of the law. So we've moved from condemnation, and we've moved now into God's favor, from condemnation to favor. So we are justified. We have peace with God. And because of that, we have a future hope. We have a future hope of the glory of God. It says it this way in the latter half of verse 2. It says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So this justification, this peace moves into something that we boast about, something that we rejoice in. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that we have a hope in the future, right? Hoping something toward something out here, something in the future that's guaranteed by what God has done for us in the past. So Jesus' death on the cross secured something in that moment that we patiently await and look forward to in the future. And it's guaranteed by Jesus' work on the cross. So as Christians, we should be a forward-looking people. We should be a people looking toward the future differently than other people. We look toward the future differently. We no longer look toward it in hopelessness. We don't look toward the future in distress. We don't look toward a future of judgment, of tribulation on the last day, like Paul described in chapter 2, but rather we look toward a future glory, a glory that is going to be revealed to us as adopted children, as a father giving a gift to his children. That's awaiting us. That's what we're looking forward to. And if you read ahead in Romans Chapter 8, Paul describes how God is going to restore all things, that because of our sin, even creation itself was subjected to futility, that we see it all around us. We see it in hurricanes and disaster and destruction, right? We see it in this morning, this very morning when a plane, Ethiopian Airlines, crashes and 157 people on board lose their life. We see destruction in this world because of sin. And so Paul is describing how we are longing for this day for God to restore everything, that creation will be redeemed, that our bodies will be redeemed, that we will be made into the image of Jesus, that we're going to share in his glory, Paul says in Romans 8, 17. But in order to share in that glory, he says that we also must share in his suffering. And so the Christian life is one that while we look toward a hopeful future, that does not mean that we are immune from suffering, from trials and tribulations now in this life. And Paul knows this. And so Paul wants to give encouragement to the church in Rome. This is the church where shortly we're going to see Christians who are burned alive on stakes. We're going to see Nero literally impale Christians and light them on fire as lampposts leading out of the city of Rome, right? This is a church that is going to experience and know suffering. So Paul wants them to do something that seems absurd to us as we read this, right? He wants us to rejoice in our suffering, 
He's going to tell the Roman church to rejoice in their suffering. He says it like this in verses 3 and 4, that not only that, so not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So who thinks that this is sort of a, a strange concept that we ought to rejoice in our suffering? It's not something that we normally think of when we think of pain and tribulations and trials, right? We don't get that bad news and then say, praise God for the bad news, right? This isn't something that we're used to, but this is what Paul is telling them that we do, that we rejoice in our suffering. So we go from boasting in the hope of God's glory to boasting or rejoicing in our afflictions. It's a strange proclamation that Paul makes. Our future hope here is contrasted with our present suffering. It's all the pain, all the hostility, all the frustrations, the affliction that we experience because we live in a fallen world. That's the suffering that Paul is referring to. But instead of letting our suffering and our frustrations lead to doubt or letting it lead to despair or letting it lessen or undermine our hope, Paul says that on the contrary, it should strengthen our hope. How is that possible? How could it be that we walk through these trials and these difficulties and that our faith would actually, our hope would actually grow and become stronger? Paul says it's because of this, that through our suffering, we gain an opportunity to exhibit endurance, to persevere in the face of affliction. And when we do this, when we face afflictions and perseverance, it produces character. And this character that is steadfast in the midst of suffering, produces a greater confidence in the future and our hope. So we can see how these things build on one another, that we encounter suffering and trials, and we endure, we press through them, and that we emerge on the other side with a stronger character, with a stronger faith, and that our hope for the future is even stronger now that God has brought us through this trial. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That far outweighs all of our suffering. That's the hope, this future glory that we are looking forward to. So think about it. Paul's telling us that your suffering is actually working for you. Your suffering is working for you. You are not governed by your suffering. You were not owned by your suffering, but rather you own your suffering and you use it to become more like Christ. You, go, you grow stronger through your suffering. One commentator puts it this way. He says, hope like a muscle will not be strong if it goes unused. Hope like a muscle will not be strong if it goes unused. Peter says it also in 1 Peter 3-7. through He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that sounds familiar to what we just read, right? That we've been justified, we've been born again because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what Paul's writing about in Romans. And we've been resurrected, or excuse me, born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That sounds like a future hope, a future hope in the glory of God. And it's being guarded by God's power through our faith, like our justification, right? Through our faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This sounds very familiar. It feels like we just read this this passage. 
And he says this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is echoing Paul here. He's saying, look, Jesus has accomplished an incredible work of redemption, that you've been born again, you've been justified, something only possible because of our faith in Christ, born again to a living hope, this inheritance, this future hope of glory that's imperishable, that cannot be taken away, that cannot be tarnished. And we endure suffering now to be made stronger later, after we come out on the other side. So we have this future hope in the glory of God, and our afflictions serve as a furnace to refine our faith and make us stronger and look more like Jesus. So think about this. How different would we walk through our suffering if we could grasp that our suffering is going to produce holiness in our lives? How differently would we view suffering if we could be encouraged by what God is telling us today, that your suffering is not in vain, that God is not absent, that whatever situation you are in, God is in fact using it to produce the hope of salvation in you, an imperishable inheritance. And as our hope increases, our salvation is made all the more certain. We should look at our suffering through this lens, that you, when you rely on him, when you cast your worries on him, when you cast your anxieties on him, when you rest in the sufficiency of his grace, his power is made great in your life. Remember what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He tells them that he's content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. Why is he content in those things? He says, for when I am weak, I am strong. When I am weak, how am I I'm strong? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of what Jesus says just one verse before that Jesus' grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in our weakness. Right? So when we depend on God and our weakness and our suffering, his power is made perfect. We see the goodness of God through our suffering. But that sounds difficult, right? It sounds difficult to be confident that as we walk through these hardships that we will actually see this future hope of glory that God has promised, right? As we walk through difficulties and trials, it's hard to have our eyes focus on something out there, something in the future. But Paul says in verse 5 that, in fact, it is certain. He says this, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So how can we be confident that this future hope of glory is going to come to pass when there's so many things, so many difficulties that we walk through. You know, right? We, Paul says that hope doesn't put us to shame because that's sometimes how we feel. We feel foolish that we would look forward to think that God is going to bring us out of the suffering that we're walking through, right? That we're going to be made to look foolish at the end because we had all of our hope, all of our confidence in God and his plan and his future glory that awaits us. And Paul is saying, no, your hope is not going to put you to shame, and let me tell you why. And he says it's because we have confidence through the Holy Spirit pouring out into our hearts God's love. Paul says that we can be absolutely certain that we are going to receive this hope of God's future promises because we receive the Holy Spirit. When we're justified by faith, we receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit testifies that we are children of God. 
that God's love is poured out into our hearts, and we are convinced in that moment of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that we recognize in that moment the love of God in the gospel for us, that we go from seeing the gospel as foolishness, like Paul is going to write, that we would believe you know, that, a, that a, a poor carpenter would die on a cross and somehow that's going to affect my future and my salvation, right? It's foolishness. And Paul says when we receive the Holy Spirit, that all changes. And we now see the gospel for what it truly is, which is God's love for his people. The same love that led Jesus to the cross. John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so now that same love, the same love that led Jesus to the cross for his people, that love is poured out into our very being. So we know that we are not only justified, but we experience a tangible move of God's love in our lives. That we experience a tangible move of God's love in our lives. And look at the phrase that Paul uses here regarding God's love and how he shares it. He doesn't say that he gives us this small sample of God's love, that, that God just gives us just a, just a portion of it. But he says he, he pours it out, that it's an extravagant display of his love. And this is my prayer, that when we think of the gospel, that when we consider what God has done for us through Jesus, that we would have this same tangible experience of the love of God that he has for us, that we would have a true assurance of what God has promised us, that we would experience this love of God in our lives when we receive the Holy Spirit, and that we would continue to receive this understanding of God's love. So how great is this love? How great is this love that God has for his people? Well, Paul goes on to tell us that in the next couple of verses. Starting in verse 6, he says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul says that while we were still weak, while we were helpless, while we were unable to save ourselves, God sent Jesus to die for us. So we are, we're powerless, we are far from God, we're disobedient, disregarding of the goodness and patience of the Lord, and yet still, even then, at the right time, Jesus went to the cross for us. Wow. That while we were weak, helpless, disobedient, and disregarding, Jesus went to the cross for us. And Paul says that, you know, perhaps, maybe for a just person, Somebody might die for somebody who's, you know, respectable. Maybe they don't run stop signs, right? Like maybe somebody might die for somebody like that. Or maybe more likely somebody would die for a good person, right? Someone that maybe they're, that we care about this person. Maybe this is a family member or maybe this is a spouse. In other words, it would take a very special set of circumstances and then perhaps somebody might give their life for another person, So how much greater then is Jesus' love that he died for us even while we were sinners? While we were rebellious, while we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us. Rebellious, openly hostile toward God. God haters. And Jesus gave his life. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 4, that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is an amazing 
love. So when we are uncertain of God's love for us, we should look toward the cross and realize, look, there's nothing lovable in us that convinced Christ to die for us. And on the other hand, when we sin as Christians, when we sin, when we fall short, there's nothing in you that makes you unlovable. Because love comes from God first, that he freely gives his love, that he unconditionally gives his love, that it cannot be earned and it cannot be diminished. It cannot be earned and it cannot be diminished. And to me, that sounds like something we should rejoice in. Amen? Amen. That our reconciliation now that we've experienced is something that we rejoice in. We rejoice in our reconciliation. So verses 9 through 11, Paul closes the section this way. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And more than that, we also, and here's the word, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. So Paul is reminding us of what God has done for us in the past. He's reminding us that, hey, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died for our sins. You are justified because of what Jesus did for you in the past and saying that now we can look forward knowing that he's going to fulfill his promise in the future, that we've been declared righteous because of Jesus's death. There's no longer any wrath remaining for us in the future, that the hard part has been taken care of. Right, that Jesus came to the earth and he died for our sins, that he went to the cross, that he was resurrected, right? This rescue ransom mission that Jesus came to the earth for, that was the hard part, and it's been finished. So if the hard part's finished, certainly we can trust that the much easier part of just fulfilling his promise will take place. We can trust that because he has finished the more difficult part, that he's going to take care of the easy part. He's going to fulfill his promise. That now, think about it, we, God sent Jesus to die for our sins while we were enemies, right? Let's follow it. He sent him to die while we were enemies, and then we've been reconciled to him, and now we are at peace. So we're no longer enemies, but friends. More than that, if we continue reading, we've been adopted as children of a loving father. So we should be confident that God is going to fulfill the promise that he said he's going to fulfill, And Paul says that that is something that we should rejoice in. There's three things that Paul tells us to rejoice in in this passage. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we are looking forward. We rejoice in the future. There's a future hope that we rejoice in. We also rejoice in our suffering. So something in the present, we rejoice now. Even in the midst of our suffering, we rejoice. And then we rejoice from the past through what God has done in Jesus. So we have a rejoicing from what God has done, we rejoice in what God is doing, and we rejoice in what God is always going to do in the future. That sounds like we should be a people who are always rejoicing. We have a past to rejoice in, a present to rejoice in, and a future to rejoice in. We should should do nothing but rejoice all the time, right? Amen? We should be a rejoicing people, Paul is saying. And that's how he ends this section. He ends this section by exalting in what God has done for us through Jesus. And we should rejoice with him. Look, God has done something astounding for us through Christ. He sends his son to die in our place, and we are now in a new status before God, one of peace instead of opposition. 
He sends the Holy Spirit to reveal his love to us in such a way that there would be no doubt in our hearts or our minds about God's saving plan. And then he tells us, look back, look at what I've accomplished to give us a guarantee that he will be faithful in the future. Look, you have been reconciled to the creator of the universe. You've been reconciled to someone who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you while you were his enemy. This is an extravagant love. This is something worth rejoicing over. Amen? Amen. So recently at our community group, I'm going to do a shameless community group plug. If you're not in a community group, you should definitely join a community group. Recently at our community group on Wednesday nights, we had someone bring a a challenging question to our group, and it wasn't one of Byron's challenge questions. But someone brought a challenging question to our group, and they asked this. They said, does God punish us? And this wasn't an argumentative question, right? Like they weren't asking, you know, does God punish us because they wanted to debate the theological or philosophical problem of evil, right? This wasn't that sort of question. They're hurting. They were asking because they were hurting. They were walking through a trial, a tribulation, an affliction, and they genuinely wanted to know with tears in their eyes as they asked this question, am I being punished? They're looking at their life and they're saying, is there some sort of sin in my life? Is there this unrepentant action that I, that I can't recall? And they thought that this difficulty that they were walking through was God's punishment. And so I need you all to hear this because I know that she is not the only one. Look, God does not punish you. If you are walking through a trial, a tribulation, if you are walking through suffering, it is not God's punishment. It is not God's punishment. God does not punish his children. Now, in Hebrews 12, we do read that, in fact, God disciplines his children because he loves us and he wants us to share in his holiness, but that is not punishment. Discipline is not punishment. To discipline, that's to teach or to train toward a desirable future behavior. Right? That's growing in holiness. That's sanctification, that God is teaching us or training us to be more like Jesus, to punish rather, is to inflict suffering for a past behavior. So God disciplines us, but he does not punish us. And he doesn't punish us because he punished Jesus. Jesus was punished in our place. That is what Romans 5 is telling all of us today, that our punishment was given to Jesus, and we are now justified and at peace with God. So if you're suffering, you're not being punished because you are at peace with God. You are his adopted children. But rather, your suffering may be being used to build a hope in you and to grow you to look more like Jesus. But it is not punishment. And not only is that true, but God's love has been poured out through the Spirit to remind you of what he's done for you, to remind you that this is not punishment. But here's what we have to do. We have a role to play in this, and that role is to stop looking at our suffering and looking at our Savior. That we have to make a transition to take our eyes off of what is happening and look back again and again and again and be reminded of this, that what God accomplished for us in the past guarantees that he will be faithful to us in the future. That we take our eyes off of the suffering and we focus it on the Savior. And look, that's our tendency Our tendency is that when life brings suffering, we focus on the situation and not the Savior. That's our our tendency. So we have to train ourselves and we have to remind one another, encourage one another that if you're walking through something, hey, look back, look at the cross, look at what God did through Jesus. 
Because when you see that, you know that he will be faithful in the future to his children. So we need to encourage one another the way that Paul did. Paul said it like this to the Corinthian church. He said, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Stop looking toward your situation and your suffering and look toward your Savior. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus and he will remind you of your standing before God, that you have hope, that you have hope of a future glory in Christ. So what I want you to leave with this morning, redemption, is just that, hope. If you need encouragement this morning, if you are walking through something difficult, if there's been challenging times in your life recently, have hope because God is faithful. He's demonstrated it in the past. He's given it to you in the present, and he's holding this promise for you in the future. He's holding this promise for you in the future. So redemption, have hope this morning. God loves you, and he cares for you, and he's preparing a place for you. So I want to end this morning with the same prayer that we began with, the same prayer that Paul has for the church in Rome. That's the same prayer that I have for our church. And that prayer is this, that the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That redemption, you would abound in hope this morning. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus.